If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands happily. And then you'll be able to not only hear the word, but read along. Never trust me in this room without a Bible to double check what I'm saying. I don't trust me. You certainly shouldn't. So anyway, but having a Bible allows the word of God to enter in not only the ear gate, but the eye gate as well. So a double blessing. Sunday morning, we're studying uh, the book of First Peter, written to suffering Christians. And we pick things up in chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have been, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of God endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your word. We never cease to give you thanks for it. There's nothing that so ministers to our spirit and the deep, deep needs of our life, our intellectual needs, our emotional needs, our spiritual needs, than this living book that you have provided us by your Holy Spirit. Nothing comes close to it in terms of the impact that it has. And Lord, we claim the prayer of our Savior, Jesus, who prayed sanctify us, to sanctify us by your truth. And we pray that you would use your word to sanctify us and to make us holy this morning, make us more and more like Christ as a result of our time in your word. Cut away what doesn't belong in our lives, Lord. Nurture and build up and encourage the things that do look like Christ. And we that's the work of the Holy Spirit we long for in each of our lives, just quietly and powerfully this morning. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Again, we remember that the letter of First Peter was written to Christians who are in the middle of great, great, uh, difficulty in their lives, great trials, even great suffering and great greater suffering coming. And it was written in order to provide them and us with encouragement that's needed at those kind of times, also to provide us with perspective and then just good practical instruction that we need during those kind of seasons in life. And at this point in the letter, the Apostle Peter, he turns to the subject of our need for our need to love one another as Christians. And I think it's sad that so often it takes some great trial 
or some great suffering to occur in another Christian's life for us to have the compassion upon them that we should. Before they're diagnosed with some kind of serious illness or they're facing some heartbreaking difficulty in uh, their marriage or in child rearing or some series of events leads that leaves them completely devastated economically or they're being harassed or being defamed or persecuted because of their faith in the Lord. We can so easily be petty and carnal and hurtful in our attitude toward them, our comments concerning them, but suffering in their life causes our hearts almost instantaneously to be filled with a great love for them and a great compassion. I wish it wasn't so. I wish it didn't take those kind of things to make us more loving toward one another, but very often it does. And the Bible teaches, but the Bible teaches that we can choose to love others and certainly choose to love other Christians all of the time. In our English language, we have uh, but one word for love, and that is the English word love. And so, because we have just one word, I'm forced to use it uh, to describe my affection toward a very uh, broad range of things. I use that English word to describe my love for my wife, uh, for my children, and for my family. But I also use it to describe uh, my affection for the 49ers, and uh, pasta, and pizza, and uh, frozen pinwheel cookies. So I'm forced to use the same word for all of these things, even though the love that I have for my wife is a very different love than I have for frozen uh, pinwheel cookies. She'll be happy to learn that this morning, and I'm sure many of you will be as well. In the Greek language, they don't doesn't have kind of the limitations that we have uh, in the English language because there are many, many different Greek words that are used to uh, describe and communicate love. And Greek was... Uh, the dominant culture of the ancient world. It was also the uh, language of the ancient world, and it was the language of the, uh, or the original of, of the New Testament. It was written uh, in Greek. And in that Greek language, uh, there, is multi- there are multiple words for love, and uh, within that language, the opportunity to express uh, needed Uh, differentiation. For instance, one of the Greek words for love is the word eros. We get our word erotic from it, and it describes love on a physical plane. And eros love is a very, very self-centered love. It is a very, very conditional love. In fact, it's so self-centered and it's so conditional that very often it's referred to as the if love. I love you If you look a certain way physically, but if your looks change, then Eros will begin to fade and ultimately disappear. Eros love will not endure wrinkles or weight gain or poor or declining health. 
And thus it is a very, very shaky foundation upon which to build a lasting relationship because over time things change uh, physically. And then there is the Greek word phileo, and it's the foundation word for uh, our city, which we call Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Ha! <laughs> what, what a misnamed city. At least when I, the sporting event, I'm just kidding. I, I know there's a lot of wonderful people in Philadelphia. I'm a big fan of Pastor Joe Foch, who pastors the Calvary Chapel in Philly, so maybe he'll listen to it and forgive me one day. So Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love because that's what phileo means. It means a brotherly love. And uh, though it, in, in phileo, uh, or brother, phileo love is love on the emotional or on the intellectual plane. So it's not as shallow as Eros that's focused almost entirely upon the physical, uh, but it's still very, very conditional and very, very self-centered. And so it is sometimes referred to as the because love. I love you because of what you are emotionally or what you are intellectually. But if you change intellectually or you change emotionally, then this love begins to fade. Then there's the Greek word that's used here in verse 22. And it's the second of the two love words where it says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That word love, that second word love. That is the word agape that is used there from the Greek. And this is the love that comes from the Holy Spirit within us as Christians. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is this agape love within our lives. And this love is called the anyway love. In other words, I love you no matter what you are or you aren't physically or emotionally or intellectually. And it is, it, it is, this love will love another person anyway. And it is the love that God, uh, the word that God uses to describe his love for us. In John 3.16, for God so agape, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord loves us with an agape love. And so this agape love is not conditional. It doesn't, in the words of Shakespeare, it does not alter when alter, it alteration finds. It is supremely concerned about the other person and not itself, and it will always do what is best for the other person. And Peter is commanding us as Christians to agape one another, to love one another with an anyway love, to love other Christians anyway, which means there has to be some anyway stuff in all of us uh, that uh, people have to look past in order to love us. We do need to notice that it is a command there in verse 22. Now, the fact that the Holy Spirit makes this a command tells us Again, that loving our fellow Christians is not something that always comes automatically or that it comes naturally to us as Christians. And so he commands it. He doesn't make it optional. He doesn't say you can love the Christians that are easy to love and then the high maintenance ones uh, you can just simply disregard. 
Just because a person is a Christian doesn't automatically make them a joy to be around. How many of you know that? <laughs> uh, not all Christians are delightful company. Uh, not all of them are easy, as I say, to be around. And not all of them are very, very, not all of them are easy to love. Some are, but others are, are a real challenge. Because our Lord makes it a commandment, it causes us as Christians to go the extra mile in loving other Christians where we might not otherwise. We would just give it up and, and, uh, and settle into something uh, less demanding like phileo love or something like that and, and then uh, and, and give up on, on, on loving the hard ones. I think about some of the obstacles we do face to naturally loving one another as Christians. There are differences of personality. Not everyone clicks personality-wise. One personality can irritate another personality. But I think one of the things that happens as we grow older in the Lord is we realize we would not want everyone to be just like us. We need the multifacetedness of of personality because there's a whole bunch of people out there that don't know the Lord yet and they will connect with a certain personality and not with another and vice versa. So there's tremendous diversity of personality in the body of Christ. I think about the apostles. There certainly was a lot of different personalities among the apostles, almost a, an infinite <laughs> decree found within the twelve. And so Christians are, in terms of personality, as diverse as the whole wide world. And then there are differences of backgrounds that we come from in life and our life experiences that form us and fashion us. And sometimes they develop and even fashion prejudice uh, in, in our hearts and in our lives. And sometimes these backgrounds uh, can get in the way. There are differences of interests. What may interest you uh, may not interest me at all and vice versa. You start to talk about what's the most important thing in your life. And I'm looking for the nearest door to get out of the room. And uh, so, uh, let's see, something just popped into my mind that I probably shouldn't say. So let me just pause for a moment here. This is, this is growth in my life. I'm not going to say it. There are differences of personal preferences and opinions about things in life, non-essentials in life. There are differences of giftings and callings in our life. We sometimes tend to think even within the body of Christ that whatever gift God has given uh, to us or calling he has on our life, that that's more important than all of the others in the body of Christ. And, and it can create a difficulty within our relationships. And then there is the issue of familiarity. And the world has the saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And there's a little bit to that. You ever notice that sometimes it's a lot easier to uh, love a total stranger than a Christian uh, that uh, you're in contact with on a daily basis? Not talking about your husband or your wife. Talking about maybe someone in the workplace or school or maybe somebody at church. And there is something you would you would dislike the other, have just as great a tendency to disliking the stranger if you were around them as much as 
is God's commands for us to not forsake the assembling of together of the saints, how he, he forces us by command to maintain contact with one another as Christians in the body of Christ, despite all of the diversity and all of the differences. And so we become familiar with one another. Um, we become aware of uh, shortcomings in one another's life. Sometimes it's an absolute shock for people to realize that Christians aren't perfect. It's a shock certainly for people that aren't Christians yet. Sometimes it's a shock for Christians. I don't know what Bible they're reading. There's only one perfect in all the world, and, and that's God. And yet and let, let a Christian fail us in some way and disappoint us in some way, and it just rocks our world. And yet, uh, and, and so we are close to one another. We do get to know one another uh, pretty well over time. And, uh, and, then, and then that can begin to be a challenge to our ability sometimes to love one another. Strangers are very easy to love because we're not around them as, as much. If we were, as I said, we would find them equally challenging to love. And then there's just uh, the flesh, just our old, stinky, rotten flesh from Adam and Eve. Just plain old conflict that happens between Christians and uh, the carnality of our flesh that comes out in our interaction with one another. And these kind of things create division within uh, relationships, and it, cre- it makes it hard, harder for us to love one another. And so that conflict comes as a result of sin and, and our selfishness and our fallen Adam nature. And as a result of the fact that there's so many things, until we're perfect and we're in heaven, that kind of fight against us loving one another the way that we do and staying united the way that we should, we need a motivation to love one another that's greater than all of these things that divide us or all of these things that can irritate us. And so how has God chosen to keep this kind of diversity that's represented in the body of Christ unified and loving one another. And he does it by providing us as Christians with things that we have in common that are infinitely superior to the relatively petty things which would threaten to divide us and threaten our love for one another. You notice in verse 22, Peter writes and he says, since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit. What's the translation of that? Here's what he's getting at. He says, in essence, he's saying, since we have been cleansed and forgiven as a result of our spiritual birth. In other words, he reminds them, and he reminds us, that we share the same salvation with every other Christian in this world. We share the same Savior with every other Christian in this world. We've been forgiven and cleansed by the same blood, the same life of Christ sacrificed on that cross, the same way that every other Christian in the world does. We're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We're united together in the same work of sharing the gospel with the world around us. The Apostle Paul brought this, brought this out probably at its strongest in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Let me read it to you. 
He said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you. And the word beseech means I beg you, please. Now imagine the Apostle Paul coming and standing before us and saying, I beg you, please. It's like, all right, you got my attention. How, how important must this be uh, to you? He said, I beg you, please, that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And then he describes what this uh, worthiness looks like or a proper or worthy response to what Christ has done for us. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And he is driving home the point. The greatness of the things that unify us as Christians, almost in the sense so that it would literally expose and shame the petty little things that we can tend to allow uh, to destroy relationship with other Christians. It's almost like the Apostle Paul says, okay, take the reason why you don't love that of a Christian and put that up against what has been purchased on that cross to unify you and then tell me how foolish it looks to you, much less How silly and petty it must look to heaven. Sometimes we need it in our lives to make us realize how small we are being in our relationship with one another. Now we notice in verse 22 the quality of love that we're to have for one another as Christians. And he speaks of this in kind of the positive, what it looks like in verse 22. He said, our love is to be sincere. And this is as opposed to insincere or as opposed to phony or pretending or artificial. How big of a blessing is it to uh, be loved with a phony love? (laughs) Somebody hates your guts or they dislike you immensely and you know it. And yet every time they see you, look you face to face, there's this phony thing that happens how valuable is that? How warm? How, how much does that warm your heart when that occurs? You look at it and you say, please, don't do this to me. <laughs> be sincere. Whatever you are, please be sincere at the very least. Let's get to sincerity. Then we can move forward into what uh, this thing called love. But our love toward one another is to be sincere, not to be pretending, not to be artificial. And God will give us his love uh, for his people. I think it's one of the great things about growing older in the Lord. And, uh, uh, and that is over time he gives us a greater and greater uh, understanding and a experience with how much he loves his body. I remember one time talking in this whole idea of, of sincere love. I remember talking with a pastor friend of mine and and he told a story, it was a missionary story, and um, a woman had gone to be a missionary, missionary in another part of the world, and 
she was a, a white American in a non-white uh, country, and uh, she was just trying way too hard to express love and express whatever she was trying to to these people. And, and it wasn't sincere. She was over the top. And it really began to create a conflict within the, the, the village. It became so great that when my pastor friend went over there to visit to see how the work was going, they said, you've got to take this woman home because she's just so this way that it comes across as it comes across as condescending. It comes across as she's trying to hide a genuine sense of superiority. It's all uh, talking down to us, though she thinks it's an expression of love. So it was insincere what was going on inside of her, just trying too hard. And he stepped in and had a conversation with her, tried to help her see things uh, properly, and she did. And the situation uh, was resolved, and she was able to be effective in that village. It means to be genuine. It means to be without hypocrisy. It literally means, when it says sincere, literally means to be not be a hypocrite. We talk about hypocrite, we say, oh, that person's such a hypocrite, and today it's just completely derogatory. And, uh, but in the time of the writing of the New Testament, it was a common, the Greek word was used to describe an actor, uh, someone who was two-faced. So you've seen probably all of you at one time or another, the, old, uh, the way they used to act in the old days, they put a smiling face mask in front when they were playing a happy character, and then a frowning face. That was a hypocrite. An actor was a, a hypocrite, someone who wore two faces. And so this is the, the, the description here uh, uh, that he, he's giving here, that we are not to give the appearance of love for a person when behind the mask in our hearts there isn't any love there at all or maybe even something worse. I think one of the greatest motivations to love one another again, comes with a reminder of how much Jesus loves the church. I'll tell you, it's humbling to think that he loves me and then to think that the church is filled with a bunch of people like me. There's a lot of love. He loves the church. He loves his people. He really does. He loves us. He loves each and every individual Christian. He loves the body of Christ as a whole for all of our spots, for all of our wrinkles. And we all have them. We all have flaws. We all have things that are noticeable flaws in our life to other people in terms of our character and all. And yet the Lord loves us for all of that. In fact, his love is so great for us that he views us as his bride on a wedding day how much is a groom willing to overlook in his bride he doesn't see a single flaw on the wedding day he should stay there I'm not saying that he should move from that place but the Lord views us the body of Christ as his bride Ephesians chapter 5 husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, 
that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. To love a difficult Christian isn't easy, but Jesus does it. He does it all of the time. It requires great self-denial at times, but it's worth it in order to become like him. It is also helpful to realize uh, that other people may feel the same way about us. You see, I can think of ten Christians who are very difficult for me to love. You can immediately think to yourself, there are at least ten other Christians who find me very difficult to love. Works all of the way around. Our love, second, is to be a brotherly love. And so when it talks about in sincere love of the brethren, that's the word phileo that we talked about, that first use of the word love there, and, and that... Uh, the, that uh, means a family love, a brotherly love. So we're not only to love our fellow Christian with agape love, uh, but loving them on a spiritual plane uh, with that love that comes from the Holy Spirit. We're, but we're to have a brotherly love for our fellow Christians uh, on an emotional plane and on an intellectual plane as well. In other words, we have a love for them, a compassion for them because we know what they are thinking. We know what they are feeling as fellow pilgrims in this world. We know what they feel and what they think when they're rejected because of their simple faith in Christ and their love for the Lord or the price that they're paying emotionally or mentally to stay faithful to God and going against the stream of the world that's going in the opposite direction. Who else is going to understand the private, mental, emotional, physical price that Christians pay in this world as followers of Christ except other Christians. I think it's very important to remember that every Christian in this world who talks the talk and they walk the walk, they pay a price for being faithful to the Lord. And it's important to realize if they're the real deal and they are endeavoring in the power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful to the Lord, they pay a price for it. You don't have to go to Somalia to pay the price for it. Uh, you don't have to go to the Sudan to pay the price for it. You don't have to go to the Middle East to pay a price or South America or Europe or some other exotic kind of place. Anywhere you find a Christian who is walking faithfully with the Lord in the world, they pay a price. It may be a private price that they will never, ever communicate, but everyone pays a price in terms of a loss of relationship. Intimacy of relationships that mean a lot to us, but rejected because of our faith in the Lord and the fact that we won't compromise related to certain issues. Every Christian in this world is spending their days and their lives swimming against the flow of this world. And you pay a price for that to fight against this strong current 
that is trying to sweep us along in terms of the world's morals or the definitions of right and wrong or the temptations that just become greater and greater and greater because the culture is throwing off the idea that these things are even sins at all or to be taken seriously at all. And then the spiritual warfare that's directed against us uniquely as Christians. It takes a great effort to resist all of that. It impacts, it takes a great effort, and it takes something out of us physically, out of us spiritually for sure, but out of us mentally and out of us emotionally, the price is paid. And there is great, great cause for having a deep compassion upon every Christian. And we really, really do need each other. He says that this love is to be fervent. And that word fervent means literally to be at full stretch. So our love is to be deep. It's to be continual. It's to be intense. And the idea is however much it stretches us, whatever it requires of us, and so our love is to be fervent as, as opposed to lukewarm or distant or cold. He says further that it is to be pure. And the idea is that it's unmixed or it's unspoiled. In other words, we love other Christians out of a pure motive. Um, sometimes the way that love works in the world, uh, the motives aren't always pure. A person begins to love another person. Because that person has something I want. They are my means to my end. They are the stepping stone to get where I might want to get in life. And so there's these mixed kind of motives in love in in the world. But we're not to love one another with the idea of getting something from someone else or using them in some way, but in order to bless their lives and in order to give them the love that they need. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter also gives us some things that are not to taint our love for other Christians and individual Christians. And so he, he, he speaks about what it doesn't look like in, in terms of practical instructions. And he lists these five things that are very, very destructive in our relationships with one another. They really do drive a wedge in our relationships as Christians. He said we're to lay aside all malice. That's a word we don't even hear about anymore, except maybe if we read the Bible on it. The word malice means an ill will, a wicked ill will. It is to harbor thoughts toward another person, to desire harm to come to someone where you wish them dead. You wish that something terrible happens to them. Now, now think about the fact that Peter, by the Holy Spirit, has to tell us these things. I mean, think about the wickedness of our heart, the carnality of our heart, that even has to bring that up. And yet sometimes that can be in the heart of a Christian toward another Christian. I hope something terrible happens to them and they, you know, fall off of their high horse or, uh, you know, that they'll get even with them. And sometimes this kind of thing comes out of unforgiveness or bitterness or 
a desire for revenge because of some wrong that's been done. But he says there's not to be any malice. We're to lay aside all deceit. And this speaks of deliberate dishonesty. Talks about lying, attempts to give the wrong impression or to mislead someone. That's not a part of love. And then number three, laying aside all hypocrisy. Again, that wearing of the mask. The, and hypocrisy is just uh, lying in action. There's a verbal lying. And then there's a, a lying in terms of, of action. So in the context here, it's the idea of giving someone the impression that I love them when I really don't. And then laying aside all envy. Envy is kind of associated with the word jealousy. Jealousy uh, means um, that I see someone has something that I want, and so I'm jealous of them. Envy is a little more cutthroat than jealousy. Jealousy sees someone who has something that I want, and because I realize that I can't have it, I hope they lose that. So, again, it's a malicious uh, kind of thing. Again, he's warning because, it, I mean, apparently, as, as God looks from heaven at the body of Christ, these are the kind of things that he sees in our hearts at times. Where there's that looking at another Christian. It can be, have to do with ministry. It can have to do with sphere of influence. It can have to do with something materially. It can have something to do with a gift that they, they might have. Or something physical related uh, to their lives. And so this... This envy uh, is to be uh, put away and, and, uh, uh, and laid aside. And then finally, laying aside all evil speaking. And this talks about slander and uh, backbiting and lies. Words that are specifically refers to words that are used to ruin another person's reputation or to uh, ruin their position by way of slander. And that can happen where someone is in a group of several in speaking. It can happen between a husband and a wife and pretty soon a discussion on a certain person. And then it turns into a slander, a destruction uh, of, of the person. And he says, this is not loving, but that evil speaking is to be laid aside. And so Peter reminds us that as Christians, and it's important to remember this, as Christians... We also have a deep, deep need for love and for support and for acceptance, just like everybody else in the world. We're no different from anyone else in that. I have a need for love and for acceptance in this world. You have the same need in your life. That doesn't stop operating in our lives because we became a Christian in fact, that need becomes even greater in the light of God's purposes for our lives, the opposition that we face as we try to be faithful to those uh, purposes. And Peter is saying that as Christians, we should always be able to count on finding love and compassion and understanding from other Christians, especially when we find ourselves in seasons of deep trial and deep difficulty and suffering. But let's not wait until someone is in that place to then show this kind of love toward one another. 
Because everyone is either in that place at the moment or they are headed for that place. And then when I find myself in that place and your attitude toward me or my attitude toward you and you're soaring and flying high and I see you now in this place, then the Spirit will rebuke the pettiness of my heart that I didn't love you sooner, that I didn't love you deeper, that I didn't understand you more deeply than I did or tried to. And so to do it, not just when we're in trouble, but to do it long before. And so this reminder of the need for love that we have from one another, and the world is not going to love us, the world is not going to understand us the way that other Christians do. This love we will receive either from Christians or we will not receive it from the human kind of level. God will always supply it to us. But this comes only from other Christians or we don't receive it at all. And because we need it, God wants it to flow from our lives toward others. And it's a good reminder, always a good reminder. And God help us here in this area of loving one another. And I know he will. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we're embarrassed sometimes for the smallness of the things that we allow to cause us to cease to love another Christian in the light of your love for them, the light of the amazing things that you have supplied to us in your Son to keep us united caring for one another, loving one another. And we thank you, Father, for passages like this that remind us of how important this is. And passages that really do shine brightly to burn off all of this kind of conditional love, this if love, this because love that is not a great enough love to have for one another. We pray that you just freshly baptize us with your Holy Spirit, that the fruit of your Holy Spirit, love being supreme among that list in the book of Galatians, that love would characterize our lives, a love for one another as well as for the whole world. And Lord, we thank you that for how far you have brought us in this area of love. We just acknowledge the work of your Holy Spirit the things that would have long ago created a crisis for us or caused us to turn away from another person. Lord, these are almost inconsequential in our lives today. And we thank you, Lord, for that progress. And we ask that you continue that progress in each one of our lives until we love and we see and we have compassion and understanding on a par with our Savior. Lord, we ask this with sincerity this morning, and we look forward to you continuing to produce it in each one of us. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for your bride. Thank you for finding a way to allow us to become a part of this family. And we thank you in the name of the one who has made it all possible. In Jesus' name, amen.